0: My interest in this passage is verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. That particular verse has always stood out to me when we take the Lord's Supper. On the night that he was betrayed, we know that according to the scriptures, Judas was one of his chosen disciples, and it was Judas that betrayed him on that very night. In Matthew 26, verse 23, during the supper, Jesus said to the group of disciples, the one who has dipped his hand into the bread with me will betray me. Judas was there. Judas was taking the supper with Jesus, Jesus, and Judas, in answer to the question, said, Is it I, Rabbi? Then Judas left the supper and betrayed Jesus. In Matthew 10, 4, I'm not going to read the passage, but Judas was named as one of Jesus' disciples, not disciple, apostles. He was an apostle of Christ. Well, this is amazing. How could an apostle break bread with Jesus and directly go out and betray him? That's what always caught my attention when I come to that verse. The prophet Zechariah prophesied this betrayal in the 6th century before Christ. In Zechariah eleven, twelve, 12, and 13, he said, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Well, this was a prophecy that the Lord would be betrayed. And this Judas' betrayal was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Judas. Now we all believe in predestination. We all believe in election. We all believe in God's chosen people. And Judas was one of God's chosen... He was predestined, obviously, to betray the Lord... The Lord, God, is the first cause of all actions. This was no surprise. The question that I have is Did Judas know that he was going to turn away? Did he have some kind of an inner feeling that he was not quite right with Jesus? Did he know that he really did not have true faith? He was with Jesus for three years. He was a member of that band of disciples. Was was he trying to be what he wasn't all that time? Deep down inside, did he know that he was a fraud? Did he have any idea that he would soon turn away and become a betrayer of our Lord? When I see that one of God's chosen turned away and betrayed the Lord, especially one of his apostles. And I read in Proverbs 6 that the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. It makes me wonder if one of his chosen could betray him. What about a sinful man like me with so much wickedness in my sinful nature. Could I do this? Could I turn away from the Lord like Judas? We know that according to the scriptures the crucifixion of Christ was predestined, carried out by evil men, evil religious leaders, evil civil magistrates, evil Roman soldiers, and a mob of evil Jews who a week earlier were hailing Jesus as their king. You know that story. As Jesus was entering Jerusalem, a week prior to the Passover, the Jews were lining the road. Many in the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Son of David, blessed be the one, the name who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth of Galilee. They were praising him, honoring him. This event is recorded in all four Gospels. One week later, these same Jews were filled with hate and they were calling for his crucifixion. Crucify him! Crucify him! How could this be? How fickle is our sinful nature? How deceiving it is. In Acts, 223, during Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, we read that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel, purpose, and the foreknowledge of God. In other words, Jesus was predestined to be crucified. His crucifixion was foreordained by God before the foundation of the world. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it was carried out in the New Testament by evil men. Some of them were, who were the men in authority. Some were ordinary, everyday men, like you and me. God used these men to carry out His will. It was God's will to crucify His only begotten Son. And it had been pre planned, predestined from before the world was. It was God's purpose and His foreknowledge that it be so. So did those men, did Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the chief priest and Pontius Pilate the governor, did King Herod the Roman soldiers and all the others, men that we find easy to disdain, did those men know what they were doing? Did those men have a choice in what they did? If Jesus was delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God in Acts 2.23, then it seems to me that all these men were simply carrying out as actors doing what God in his providence had planned in advance that Jesus would be crucified right down to the last detail. And the crucifixion would be carried out on the very day that God planned it in just the way it happened. Were all of these men who crucified Jesus chosen? Or did it happen that they were just unfortunate men that happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Somebody might say, that was just bad luck. No, there's no such thing as bad luck. This was the providence of God. You testify that you have faith in Christ. I hope you do. We read in the scriptures that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined to become the children of God in Christ. So, how could this betrayal of Judas apply to us? God chose us. But didn't God choose Judas also? Judas knew that he was chosen. Did Judas know that he was chosen for betrayal? Did all the others know that they were going to crucify the Son of God? Those are the things that crossed my mind. I believe that I'm one of God's chosen, and I believe that most of you believe the same thing about yourself. It gives me great comfort when I read the passage like Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, it comforts me when he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will that just seems to fit me i believe that i was predestined i believe i was chosen to be a child of god in christ and then i read that passage in first corinthians 11 For I received from the Lord that which was delivered to you, that on the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed by one of his chosen. And I confess to you, brethren, each time I read that passage, it does cross my mind. Could I turn away? Is it possible? Could I fail before I reach the end? Could this happen to me? I remember the sinful man that I used to be. I used to live in such a despicable way. I won't tell you everything. I remember, though, being delivered from that life in the most bizarre and wonderful and mysterious manner and falling in love with Jesus instantly. But then at the same time, I have such a struggle in the inward man with sin, my heart and my mind is in conflict. And sometimes it makes me wonder if Judas could be with Jesus for three years, share in the Passover each year, literally, and travel with him. And personally witness the miracles that Jesus performed and sit at Jesus' feet every day and listen to his teachings, if Jesus could do that and still betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What about me? I wonder if the corruption in my own heart would let me turn away and deny Jesus like Judas did. I know what the scriptures say about eternal security. Being raised with Christ on the last day, I know all that, and you do too. After three years with Jesus, every night and every day, didn't Judas know all of these things too? Brother Don Fortner, a Sovereignty of God preacher at Grace Baptist Church in Danville, Kentucky, one of my favorite preachers, he has a sermon on this subject. He titled it, Do I Love Jesus?, I took the crux of that sermon, modified it, added to it, subtracted from it, and I'm preaching it to you today. As much as I try, I fall woefully short of the holy life that I'm called to. I know the corruptions that are in my heart. I'm all too familiar with them. I know that my mind engages in sinful thoughts. I'm well aware of the fact that my heart wanders and my faith is too often weak. And sometimes I wonder, will I make it to the end? I want to know for sure that the faith I have is true faith. And I want you to know for sure that the faith you have is real, that you are Truly saved. You know that parable about the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. It's about true and false believers. There's a lot of them in the church. Have you ever wondered if you're a true believer or a false convert? The church and the world are full of both. And they all look alike. Jesus told his disciples to leave them alone until the end and the terrors will be pulled up, separated and thrown into the fire while the wheat will be saved into the barn. When my sinful flesh wanders into sin, I wonder... When the disciples sat with Jesus at that Last Supper, he told them, One of you is going to betray me because one of you is the devil. Every one of them, every one of the disciples. And you can read it in Matthew 26. Every one of them except the betrayer, all except Judas, Judas said, Is it me? Is it I, Lord? You know, surely you don't mean me. Every one of them to the man had doubts. Could it be me? They all said, is it I? And then finally, maybe out of embarrassment, maybe he knew he was on the cusp of betrayal. We don't know that. But finally Judas said, is it me, Rabbi? Get this. This is amazing to me. Judas was at with all the disciples when Jesus called them friends. And Jesus said to them, Also, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15, 16. Judas was one of the disciples who said to Jesus, We know that you know all things, and you have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. We all agree, he said, we know you are from God. Jesus called Judas a friend. Jesus told him that he chose them. Judas knew that he came from God, and yet Judas, a chosen apostle of Christ, betrayed him. I find that very interesting. But it also makes me shudder. It makes me quiver on the inside. It's a scary thought to think that a friend of Jesus, one of God's chosen, was able to betray him and he knew he was from God. Jesus calls us friends. We believe that we were chosen by God and we believe that Jesus came from God. In fact, we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul himself had concerns, friends, Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. I discipline my body to keep it under control. This is a weak translation, but what it means is that he struck his own body. Literally, he bruised under the face, under the eyes, according to the commentators, so as to render himself black and blue to chastise in the most sensitive parts to mortify the deeds of his body. And then he goes on, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Did you hear that? He was concerned that after preaching to others, the graces of God, salvation through Christ, the wonders and the mercies of our Lord, he was concerned that he should be disqualified or prove that he was a reprobate. Even the great preacher, the Apostle Paul, concerned himself with his salvation. Do we discipline our bodies like that? Do we discipline our bodies, chastising ourselves to keep it under control? Chastising the most sensitive parts? You all know John Newton, know of him, the famous slave trader who was converted from a lifetime of sin. He's the author of one of our most precious hymns, Amazing Grace. I'm sure we all love this hymn. I love it. Can't get enough of it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved A wretch like me, I once was lost, but now am fine. T'was blind, but now I see through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And grace will lead me home, written by a man who is full of assurance. Grace will lead me home. No doubt there. He wrote many hymns, by the way, nearly 300 of them. Most of them we've never heard. But there was one that caught my attention after reading this. Grace will lead me home. I am assured of my salvation. I'm in the hands of God. He wrote another one called, Tis a Point I Ought to Know. Tis a Point I Ought to Know. Did you ever hear that one? Probably not. It's a great hymn, though. But the lyrics in this hymn are very thought-provoking. It makes the great John Newton, who was so assured that he would get home because the grace of God, had a few doubts. Listen to these words in verse 1. "'Tis a point I long to know. Oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no?' Do I belong to him or do I not? Do I belong to him or do I not? Did John Newton struggle with his faith? Isn't this one thing that we all want to be sure about? Is grace going to lead us home? Do I love the Lord or not? Am I truly a child of God? Have I been absolutely redeemed? Am I devotedly united with Christ? Am I a devout disciple? Do I belong to him or not? I hear the words of the apostle Peter speaking to Jesus saying, Even if I have to die with you, I will not, not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Peter was confident. He had strong faith. And immediately, he denied the Lord. He denied that he even knew him. I wonder how many are in hell today that were absolutely sure that they were the elect of God. Absolutely sure. That they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Regular church members who were absolutely sure they were true believers. Professors of Christ who never questioned their salvation. They took it for granted. They were confident and they hid themselves in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And they never checked their souls. the ones who had a religious experience of some kind, baptized and told, say this prayer, baptized, and you're saved. It's good enough. That was good enough for them. They joined the church, and they never looked back. They carried on in life as though there was nothing wrong, even though they should have known better. And on that day... When they stood in judgment, they heard those awful words from the mouth of the Redeemer. Away from you. Away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. I hope that's not any of us. When I read the obituaries, you're probably not old enough to read the obituaries yet, but I read the obituaries once in a while to see if my name is there. And I read that This man has been a member of the church for 37 years, or this lady was a member of the hospitality committee, or this man was the head deacon. And sometimes I wonder, what does that mean? A member of the church and the head deacon. Were they Christians? Did they belong to the Lord? Or not? The Apostle Paul, a man who had a very dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. You know that story. He hated Jesus, and he was on his way to destroy the church. He was knocked to the ground and blinded by the light from heaven. In Acts 8, the following years, the Apostle Paul had personal revelations from the risen Christ in Galatians 1, 12. He had more than enough reason to be sure. He did not take salvation for granted, however. He did not simply have an experience and adopt the attitude, that's it. That box is checked off. That's all I have to do. Describing his salvation, the apostle also said that he pressed toward the mark of the prize. He was straining against sin. He was pursuing the prize. Because this Christian life is not easy to live, friends. You know that. It's like a runner running a race. He's heading toward the finish line. His mind is focused, not thinking about anything else except the finish line. I've got to finish. The goal of finishing absorbs all of his energy, and he's pressing for the mark to receive the prize. That's where the prize is at the end. The prize is at the finish line. The prize is not here. As good as we have it in the church, as good as our fellowships are, as good as our friendships are, as good as the many blessings we have in each other and in Christ and the wonderful inter-family relationships, these are part of the blessings that we have, but the prize is not here, friends. We cannot become sluggish. We can't be lukewarm. We have to press on to the end of the race. And I confess that as I search my own soul, I wonder sometimes, am I truly pressing? Am I truly pressing toward that mark? Am I pursuing? Am I straining? Am I exerting myself toward the high calling? It's not that I've been saved And now I can just go to church comfortably and go through the religious motions and think that that, that's all there is to it. No. Salvation is not something we did once. Yes, the Bible does say we are saved, past tense by faith, but it also says that we are being saved. There's something going on between being saved and being saved. We're not there yet. We must live it out. We must persevere. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When I get to the end of my life, and I'm sure yours, I don't want to find out that my eternal hope was a false hope. I don't want to find out That I've been living in a delusion. I wish that I didn't have struggles with my flesh, but I do have struggles, and I suspect you do too. Every one of us are going to stand before God in judgment on that day of reckoning, and I pray that we don't presume. I pray that we all take the matter of salvation very seriously. Am I truly in love with Jesus or am I a false convert? Do I really have saving faith? Do I really belong to Him? Is all my living and all my moving and all my breathing in Christ? Does the Spirit of God dominate my life? Am I one of God's chosen people? We love our doctrines of grace, don't we? We can discuss and debate them with the Arminians and the Pelagians all day long, but sometimes I wonder, do we take our doctrines so seriously and even more seriously than we take our salvation? We can argue the Bible, but what about the condition of our heart and our soul? On that day, will we be wearing a wedding dress on the Day of Judgment, or will we be dressed in rags? I know that God has a chosen people that He chose before the foundation of the world. I know that He's redeemed a people by His vicarious sacrifice and the pouring out of His blood. I know that it's the Holy Spirit who calls dead sinners out of darkness and into light by his sovereign power and he imparts life into dead souls. Has my dead soul indeed been made alive in Christ? Am I pleasing God in all that I do? Do I really love him? True believers will press on. True believers will finish the race and finally be saved. All the blessings in heaven are in Christ. Redemption, justification, sanctification, it's all in Christ. I know this and you don't know it too. We all look good on Sundays. Every one of us look good. Well, I might not look so good, but we all look good. We got our best face on. But just because we're here looking good doesn't mean we're living our life according to the word of Christ in submission to him. I don't want to spend an hour giving an academic lesson about the scriptures. You don't, you don't need that, and I don't either. I'm going to preach. If I'm going to preach, I'm going to preach to my own soul first, because I need it. God knows that. And I'll preach to yours also. The Bible is very clear regarding our salvation. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. In other words, you're not approved. We're told to examine ourselves. We're told to test ourselves. Take nothing for granted. Make absolutely certain that Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test, unless you are not approved. In John, 1 John 2, we read in the second, third verse, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. For whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. How many of us say, I know him? How many of us say, I'm his and he's mine? How many of us sing, oh, how I love Jesus? How many of us keep returning to that same sin and committing it over and over, whether it's habitual sin of any kind? There's a difference between one who stumbles occasionally, because we all do, and the one who is sinning habitually. If you say, I know him, but you do not live according to what he commands... You're a liar, the scripture says. The truth is not in you. We must take great care to make sure that our calling is real, to make sure that our faith is true. Because there is a faith out there that is false. In Hebrews chapter six, verse two, if you will. Hebrews chapter six. Verse 2, talking about knowledge, I'm sure there's a wealth of knowledge on doctrinal teaching and theological uh, positioning, but look at the knowledge that these professing Christians had. These people apparently have been professors of Christianity for a considerable time. They all have knowledge. Look at what they know in verse 2. They know the doctrine of baptisms. They know the laying out of hands. They know the resurrection of the dead, and they know of eternal judgment. They have an abundance of scriptural knowledge, much knowledge of the scriptures. That's all great. But what about their salvation? The writer of Hebrews says, you must go on to perfection, not laying again the foundations of faith toward God. They're told to turn away from dead works and false faith toward God. They had great knowledge, professing faith in Christ, but they weren't pressing toward the mark of the high calling in Jesus. Were these people false professors? Were they fakes? Were they tares among the wheat? We don't know. Then look at verse 4 and see the end of false faith. For it is impossible, this is the part that's scary, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance see that they crucify themselves to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. What a terrifying thought that is. This passage is not intended for true believers. I pray that it's not intended for you. But obviously, there's many who fall into this camp. We've been called unto repentance by God. If we've been called, we've been justified. If we've been called and justified, we've been sanctified. And we've been giving true faith. So we must press on, and God will help us. We must go on to perfection. Living the life of faith is exciting in so many ways. It's such a blessing in so many ways. But there's other excitement out there. Even false faith has excitement. In fact, false faith can even be somewhat reforming. You've heard of people who've reformed their life. Not faith in Christ, but reformed their life. False faith has caused many to even move off into a life of austerity, many move off into a life of good works. Look at the monks who leave society to live in a monastery. How about the religious priests who make vows of uh, poverty and chastity and obedience to their superiors? Those who have devoted themselves to a life of goodwill and generosity. There's those who go on mission trips for the wrong reasons. False False faith has a nice appearance on the surface. But hear what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 8: These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. False faith. King Saul feigned repentance to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. He was more concerned about the punishment than true repentance before God. Even the king, wicked King Ahab, rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and he went about softly. It looked real on the surface. And maybe it was sincere for a moment. The outward signs looked good fasting and sackcloth, but the inward character of Ahab wasn't changed. The inward character of King Saul wasn't changed. The repentance was not from God and a love of God. Nor was it a repentance because of a hatred for sin, but from fear of the consequences of sin. Even Judas, the betrayer, was seized with remorse, but he did not love God. The religious Pharisees Looked good on the outside, but dirty on the inside. Esau sought his blessing with tears, but could not find it. Then we see Demas, a longtime friend and fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. Presumably had true faith. By all accounts, he was with Paul preaching the gospel on two long mission trips. A man who was a friend of Paul for years, but he fell away. He left. Paul wrote and I'm sure very sadly, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas left Paul because he fell in love with the world. Demas chose the corrupt value system of the unsaved world. He loved the things of this life more than he loved Christ. So I ask you, and I ask myself, Could this be one of us? What about those who cried out, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. If we don't have the faith of the elect, it's better we find out sooner than later. If we have been chosen unto salvation by God, we will stand the test because our faith will stand up under examination. I don't need to remind any of you that we all fail miserably and regularly. The Lord sees the wickedness in the human heart. He says that every inclination of it is only evil all the time. But even though we have evil in our heart, we have sin in our flesh, and we do things that are wrong, we have a tendency to justify ourselves. True believers don't justify themselves. Look at Job. He didn't defend himself when he answered the Lord. He said, Behold, I am vile, I am nothing, I am insignificant. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've got nothing to say. Job said, I repent in dust and ashes. You know, friends, each and every one of us, those who are born-again believers who have the Spirit of Christ in you. There's a war going on, the raging war that never ceases. There's an old man of the flesh that came from Adam. And we have the new man, the Spirit of Christ, in us. The old man and the new man are at war with each other. The old man never stops sinning. You wonder why, you're, why you sin? You got an old man in there sinning. He wants to sin. He loves his sin. He loves his lust and he loves his ungodliness and he despises God. That's the nature of our sinful flesh. Jesus said in the third chapter of John when he was talking to Nicodemus, flesh, that which is born of flesh is flesh and it never changes, my friends. It never gets better. That's the nature of your flesh and the nature of my flesh. The flesh is corrupt. And the flesh corrupts, and it gets worse. It doesn't get better. When I was in my 20s, I thought by 30 I'll be, I'll be okay, I'll have it together. When I got to be 30, I knew it was 40. And I got to be 40. It got worse. And then 50, and I'm not going to tell you how far I went. But it, I guarantee you, my friends, the more that I become conformed to the image of Christ, the more wickedness I see in my own members The old man is getting worse. Not better. In fact, I would have to say that he's probably worse than ever. But there's the new man. The spirit man. That spirit that sealed my heart on the day I believed. There's that man who has been born of God. The man who has been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. The spirit man who loves holiness and desires to obey all of the ordinance of God. That new man is at war with that old guy. The spirit man can't do the things he used to do. He can't continue in doing those things. Too much corruption and sin because that new man belongs to God, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. There's a war going on. Peter said to the elect exiles in Asia Minor, you are a chosen race. This applies to you also, brethren. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people for his own possession. What an encouraging word we get from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Peter to God's adopted children, living in a world of unbelief and corruption and sin, growing hostility with temptations all around. You are God's chosen ones, a people of God's possession. Do you know what that means? You feel the import of what that means? We must rejoice in being God's chosen people. John Piper said, your faith is a wonder. Think about it. Your faith is more wonderful than any of the seven wonders in the world. And I believe it. If you've come to Jesus Christ in faith, the wonder is, that you already belonged to the Father before that. And it was the Father who gave you to Jesus. You were not chosen because you came to Christ. You came because you were chosen. That's what Jesus said in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They were yours, Father, and you gave them to me. if you have believed in Jesus the wonder is that you were first appointed to eternal life. You weren't appointed because you believed, you believed because you were appointed. In Acts 13 when the Gentiles heard that the gospel actually included them They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as appointed were appointed believed. And that's amazing. It's amazing. Think about it. The Lord has set his love on you and chose you. Why did he choose you? Because he loves you. And why does the Lord love you? Because he loves you. That's it. He loves you. That's the deepest and the ultimate basis of God's choosing you. He loves you. You belong to him. We know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. We know that you are God's chosen people because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You became imitators of us, says Peter. Says Paul, actually. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word with much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You are embracing the gospel. You are living for Christ. You are submitting to the word of Christ and professing the name of Christ, and you are suffering for his sake. You are rejoicing because God has blessed you by granting the benefits of Christ's redemption, his redemption, his resurrection. You've been set apart unto holiness, and you found, are found blameless in Christ, adopted as children of God in Christ, blessed through Christ's death, that he died on the cross, and he died in our place as our sin bearer on our behalf. By faith we belong to Christ. We have everything we need to grow spiritually. We are one with Christ, therefore we can enjoy the blessings that we have from God now and we will enjoy them for eternity. But even so, the Christian life is not easy. This world is full of sin and temptation and there's a conflict, a great conflict between the good and evil that takes place here in the world and also in our flesh and in our souls. This conflict will continue, but the battle has already been won by Christ and his death and his resurrections. Resurrection. This is where our living hope and our eternal inheritance assured for us. We are secure. It's being kept for us by God until our salvation is complete. So the Apostle Paul exhorts us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look to the things above where Christ is, not the things of this earth. Peter said, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble Trust God in all that you do. Keep the faith, as weak as it may be sometimes. Keep the faith. Stay near the cross. Obey the word. Walk with Christ. And he will sustain you, and grace will lead you home. Amen.